Okay, Psalm 1, here we go. Psalm 1, book 1, the way of the righteous and the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that that yields fruit in its season, and, and its leaf does not wither. In fact, all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, we're going to look at some of the better-known psalms this summer, and Psalm 1 is really one of my favorite ones. But here's a question I want to throw at you, just to see if you've ever thought about this. Why aren't some of the better-known psalms, like Psalm 51 or Psalm 100 or Psalm 103, you, all of you I know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, why are some of these better-known psalms really Psalm 1? Why aren't they the ones that kind of kick off the book of Psalms, right? Think about Psalm 51. It's a great psalm on repentance and restoration. Why doesn't Psalms begin with Psalm 51? Why isn't Psalm 51 Psalm 1, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Precious, precious words, right? Why isn't Psalm 23, Psalm 1, kicking off the book of Psalms? How about Psalm 103? It's such a winsome psalm about God's mercy. You know, why wouldn't Psalm 103 kind of plaster the front page news of Psalm Psalms and not be Psalm 1, right? Or Psalm 139, we kick off the Psalms with this grand view of the majesty of God. Why wouldn't Psalms begin with Psalm 139? So that's the question before us. Why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? Why does it begin the book of Psalms? Here's why I think so. Because Psalm 1 packs, in such a sh- short few verses, it packs such a punch, and it packs an issue that's of utmost importance for you this morning. And I say this morning, this really is important, folks. So I want you to hear this. Psalm 1's got a message for you this morning. It's, it's basically saying, I'm... I'm bringing you to a place this morning and showing you that there are two tracks, there are two ways in your life, two destinies that are clearly spelled out for you here in in Psalm 1. And so Psalm Ways, in many ways, stands as an excellent and awesome introduction to the book of Psalms because it, uh, Derek Kidner said this, it acts like a doorkeeper, if you will. It acts like a gate, a doorkeeper that confronts us with the truth, or are we part of the congregation of the righteous that this psalm talks about? It says that you have a choice. There are two ways to go, basically, is what the psalm says, and that you stand in a fork in the road this morning. I just read God's word to you. It's powerful. It's true. So you are presented this morning with a choice. You have two ways you can go. You're, you're presented with a fork in the road, essentially. And which way will you go? Which path, which direction are you on? In fact, if you read the Psalms, then you read the New Testament, Jesus talks about the Psalms a lot, and and he makes allusions to the Psalms a lot. And I think in Matthew chapter 7, he alludes to Psalm number 1. Listen to this, see if you can pick this up. In Matthew 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it, he says, are few. So essentially Jesus is alluding to Psalm 1 in those words in Matthew 7. And so Psalm 1 is like what Jesus said. It gives us this picture, this black and white picture, and saying to you this morning, and I want you to hear this. If you're taking notes and you write down one thing, write this down. Psalm 1, the message of Psalm 1 is simple. It's in this one sentence. 
Nothing is so crucial as you belonging to the congregation of the righteous. That's what Psalm 1 said. That nothing is so important and crucial in your life as you belonging to the congregation of the righteous. There's an old saying that says, if you want someone's, if you want to get someone's attention, whisper. You ever heard that phrase before? Well, Psalm 1 kind of takes the opposite tact and track of that. It doesn't whisper. It really shouts. It beats this one drum, this kind of one point. It's a one-point psalm. It's a one-point song, and it beats this, trun- this drum. of. It sets up this contrast between the life of the wicked and the life of the righteous. And so we're going to see that contrast. We're just going to look at this one point this morning. Are you a part of the congregation of the righteous? And we're going to look at this contrast because it sets up this clear contrast of the wicked and the righteous. And we're going to kind of look at that one contrast between these two in three different ways or three different angles this morning. Here are my three points, if you will. So if you're taking notes, here they are. The first one is this. It's Psalm 1 shows us the direction of the Christian's life. The direction of the Christian's life, point number one. Point number two is the description of the Christian's life. And then point number three is the destiny of the Christian's life. So let's jump in. First thing we see is this, is the direction of the Christian's life. Now, if you were to peel back the layers of the first two verses of Psalm 1, it shows us where the righteous man gets his direction or gets his signals for living his life in verse 1 and 2. So verse 1 and 2 are almost like sign markers or signposts pointing to you for which direction, if you are a follower of Jesus, which direction you should be heading as a believer, as a Christian. And Psalm, verse 1 and 2 talk about what drives your life, what motivates you, what drives you. Now, it's interesting that this psalm, verse 1 in particular, starts with the negative. Instead of starting with the positive, it starts out in the negative. You ever have somebody come to you and say, hey, I got some good news and the bad news? And it's funny, you know, either you're an optimist or a pessimist. If you're an optimist, you're like, oh, yeah, give me the uh, good news first, right? And if you're a pessimist, what do you say? Give me the bad news first, right? Well, Psalm 1 kind of starts out for all of you. It says you're all pessimists because I'm going to give you the bad news first. That's kind of how Psalm 1 kicks off. So it gives us the bad news. Firstly, the psalmist gives us this description of what the righteous man rejects, okay? It doesn't start off in the positive. It starts off in the negative. It gives us this description What does the righteous man reject? So here's what he's saying in these first two verses. Notice that the psalm starts out with what word? First word. Tell me. What's the first word? Blessed, right? Now think about this. Does Jesus start off some of his teaching in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes with a certain word? Blessed, right? Same word used here. And it's interesting that the best way that we can translate this word blessed is happy. That's really, in the Hebrew, the word translated blessed, the best, most common use that that word is translated is happy. Happy is he. Blessed is he. Happy is he. So Psalm 1 saying, happy is he. Blessed is he. Happy is he. So Psalm 1 saying, verse 1, so the happy man, the one enjoying God's blessed blessings, is the separated man. The one who's not just neutral and kind of rolling with the flow, but but he has a prejudice against all evil in, in all of its form. And I think Psalm 1 is not going to be necessarily popular with someone who really is trying to be sensitive and politically correct and very sensitive to offend anyone's sensibilities. Psalm 1 not going to be very popular for someone who's thinking more like that because Psalm 1 is saying, happy are you or blessed are you if you are exclusionary. Now, 
you're going to be thinking, wait a minute, we're not supposed to exclude people. We'll get to that in a minute. Track with me, though. Psalm 1, verse 1 saying, happy are you, blessed are you if you're exclusionary. Now, what do I mean by that? One who excludes in his life excludes that which is evil is basically what he's saying in verse 1. And notice that he gives us these three phrases, three clauses here in verse 1 and 2. He says, here's what qualifies, here's what sets apart a happy man, one who is blessed in the Lord. He says, first clause, blessed is he who doesn't walk, what? In the counsel of the wicked. Second clause, blessed is he who doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Third clause, blessed is he who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. So basically he's saying, here's a direction of one's life. If you're to be blessed, if you're to be a righteous man, here are these three things you need to avoid. Now, when I said that this psalm is saying, happier those, blessed are those who are exclusionary, I'm not saying that we exclude people, that we shut people out, that we're to be a bunch of, you know, when I went to college, I went to Winthrop College, and uh, the, kind of the sad joke was all the Christian students sat together in this one area of the cafeteria, and, and a lot of folks who were mocking it called it Jerusalem. <laughs> There's the Jerusalem group. They're sitting over there by themselves. That's kind of a horrible way to say it, but we're not called to circle the wagons and, and shut the world out. You know, Jesus said to what? To uh, uh, not be of the world, be in the world, but not of it. We're not called to be not being of the world and not of it. We're called to love folks, right? We're, we're, we're called to point people to Jesus, So the psalmist is not saying you just exclude people for people's sake, circle the wagons and kind of be your own internal Christian unhealthy mess. He's not saying that. What is he telling us to do here? He says this. He says, counsel, way, and seat. We kind of see those terms. Basically, he's trying to draw our attention to say that if you have a way of thinking and of belonging where your your fundamental choice of allegiance is to the world and its culture, that's a problem. Your fundamental choice of allegiance and the way you carry that out in your life. Another way he says it is this, is which people do you identify yourself with? Who do you identify yourself with primarily primarily in life? Who's your people? That's what Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Who's your peeps, right? In the South, we love to say that, right? These are my people, right? I come from so-and-so. These are my people, right? That's kind of what you say. These are my people. That's kind of what verse 1 and 2 is saying. These are my people, right? These are not the kind of people that need to be your people, is what he's saying in verse 1 and 2. Where is your choice of allegiance, he says in verse 1. And then he begins to give us this clear picture of how people depart from God. He kind of gives us this three degrees of departure, I call it, from following God. Three degrees of conformity to this world in verse 1 and 2. So he says, first of all, that first degree of conformity to the world is accepting the world's advice. You seek the world's counsel. Now, all of us have counselors. Well, no, I don't. I don't pay for counseling. I'm not crazy. I don't go to a counselor. I'm not saying, that, and there's, by the way, nothing wrong with that. I think every person who loves the Lord needs to have counsel, absolutely. But you do have counselors in your life, every single one of us, whether it's your mom or your parents or your sister or friends. Every single one of us has counselors. In fact, you're your own counselor, and many times you're your, you're, you yourself are your, wor- your own worst counselor, <laughs> Right? But we all have counsel. We all seek counsel in our life. So he's saying this first degree of conformity to the world is who are you seeking advice from? Who are you seeking counsel from? Is it from culture and the world first? Or is it ultimately from God's word? We'll see that contrast in a minute. And then you move from seeking the counsel of the world, the wicked, 
to becoming party to its ways, you begin to align yourself with the world and its culture and its lifestyle. That becomes the primary way, primary way and area where you begin to seek significance, okay? You align yourself with the world and its ways. And then you begin to adopt the most fatal of its attitudes by becoming a scoffer. So it's this gradual decline, slope down from seeking counsel to becoming more of aligning yourself with the world, and then eventually you adopt the most fatal of its attitudes by becoming a scoffer. Now, we don't use that term scoffer very much these days. It's kind of an old term, but in Scripture, it uses that term very often. Scoffer simply means that someone who is bought into this life of unbelief, where they refuse Christ, where they blatantly reject Christ. And not only do they refuse and blatantly reject Christ, they they actively live a life of unbelief, but they actively seek through mockery to express contempt of the world. They, they They actively, through mockery, seek to belittle and undermine those who would seek to be righteous in God's eyes through Christ. And so they are mockers, scornful, scoffers, and they act out of deep pride, the, the God's Word says. Here's just a couple of examples. If you look at the work term scoffers in Proverbs, it's all over the place, place in Proverbs. Here's a couple of examples. Proverbs 21 says, A scoffer is the name of the arrogant or the haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Proverbs says the scoffer refuses to seek or accept instruction or correct, correction. Proverbs 9 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Proverbs goes on to say, Don't reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. But you reprove a wise man and he will love you, he says. Scoffers delight to stir up strife among a community or among a family. Proverbs 22 says, Drive out a scoffer and strife will go away. You drive him out, strife will go away. And quarreling and abuse will cease, the writer of Proverbs says. So we begin to see this clear picture in verse 1 that Happy or blessed is the man who does not align himself with the scoffer. Happy is the man who is countercultural. It's kind of like the ultimate hipster here in Proverbs 1, verse, I mean, uh, Psalm 1, verse 1. He's different, right? He's not just some nice, easygoing guy who, who's a good old boy who likes to get together and drink a beer with, right? He's not just that. He's a picture of a righteous man, not a good old boy, but a righteous man. Marty Groth, who is a psychologist and just a really funny writer, he's got these great little one-liners. He tells of this elderly lady who lived to be 104, over 104 years old, and he had met with her and asked her this question. He said, what's the best thing about being 104 years old? You know what her reply was? No peer pressure. (laughs) Isn't that good? Isn't that funny? But you see, the righteous man described for us in verse 1 He's not 104 years old, old, and he meets tons of peer pressure, right, in his life, and it costs him dearly. But he's not one to go with the flow of life. He goes against the flow. Think about it like this, Del Ralph Davis, who I love, and I'm using his commentary even for this series. He says this. He says, We must always remember that the lure of the wicked and sinners and scoffers doesn't usually come all at once, right? This lure doesn't all come at one time. It may come in a rather bump-along fashion from teachers or friends or family or spouses. And it simply suggests that if you do not think this way, you'll not be thought of as sharp or intellectual. If you don't act this certain way, you you will not be cool. If you don't laugh at what we mock, we don't want any part of you. You see, verse 1 is not just a description of what to avoid, but it's a gracious warning to us. 
It's like kind of an Old Testament Romans 12. You remember Romans 12, 1 and 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed right by the renewing of your mind. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold is kind of what Psalm 1 is saying. But then we get to verse 2. And so verse 1, we've kind of see, seen the negative. What a righteous man is not. But then we get to verse 2 and we get the positive. We get the good news of the Christian's direction in life. What is it that, that would lead a righteous man to reject all the appeals of verse 1, to walk away from all of the stuff in verse 1? Well, it's nothing less than the pursuit of pleasure. Now, wait a minute. Pleasure is a bad word in Christian circles. We can't use the word pleasure. It's bad. We can't use the word desire. That's bad. Oh, absolutely not, beloved. It's the absolute pursuit of pleasure here that he says in verse 2. That the righteous man cares more for his pleasure than he does for his pressures. Get that? He cares more for his pleasure than the pressures in his life. Notice how verse 2 starts out. But his what? Delight. It's his pleasure. It's his delight. We take our cues. All of us take our cues. All of us take our signals from somewhere. What directs us, right? Psalm 1 says that this man, this kind of man, takes his cues, his direction, not from the wicked, but he takes his direction from God's law. And law here mentioned is not talking about like just the Ten Commandments. Law here translated means the whole entire counsel of God, God's word, which is law and grace. It's, it's exhortation and encouragement. It's all of God's word. Genesis to Revelation is what he's saying. So this kind of man takes all of his cues from God's word, the entirety of God's word. It's God's word that feeds him. It's God's word that directs him. It's his delight. If you will, he gets his kicks pondering God's will and God's word. That's what the righteous man does. And then it says what? Not only does he, is he preoccupied with God's word, but he's preoccupied with it. What does it say? Day and night, right? And this word meditate here seems to carry the idea of murmuring or muttering, almost like talking to yourself. I don't know about you, but, you know, this is the day of GPS and phones, and, we, you know, when we want to go somewhere, what do we ask? Hey, what's your address? We type it into our phone, and we trust our phone, right? But sometimes your phone doesn't work, right? And you have to ask for directions. Men, do you do ask? Do you ask for directions? Most men, we don't, right? Well, I got it, honey. We'll get there, no problem. And we're like 30 minutes late because we, we're fine. It's okay. It's no big deal, Right? But have you ever asked for directions? And you, you go and you ask for directions. You stop at the gas station. You ask for directions. They tell you, turn here, go four miles, turn left there, go to this light, turn on this street, right? And you're muttering to yourself. You're murmuring to yourself so that you'll remember it. You're walking out to your car. Turn left there. Do I turn right or left? Left. Okay, I keep going straight. You're murmuring to yourself, trying to get it into yourself so you remember. You ask for somebody's phone number. You ever call a friend and say, hey, what's so-and-so's phone number? And they give you the phone number. You don't have anything to write with. You're in the car driving what do you do? You're murmuring to yourself. Seven eight seven eight four nine seven. Seven eight seven eight four nine seven. Seven eight seven nine. Oh no, eight four nine. You know, you're murmuring it to yourself so that you can get it into yourself so that you'll remember. You have to work it in, right? That's what he's saying here. When we're preoccupied with God's word, day and night, we meditate upon it. We're working it into ourselves, right? That's what the righteous man is doing. He treasures and delights in God's word. He works it into himself day and night, regularly and consistency, consistently. And I found that true as I read and, and meditate and feed on the promises of God. Because when I don't, I find myself drying up. You ever find yourself that way when you've just not been in God's word for a time and you get to begin to get anxious and, you know, you get upset about the dumbest stuff, Right? 
But when you come back to the promises of Scripture, it's like, God, why haven't I done this? You know, and sometimes really meditating on and remembering God's words, the only thing that keeps a Christian afloat in life. I remember when I was in high school, I went to boarding school up in, right up the road in Charlottesville, Virginia. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was making D, and D, equal to, D doesn't mean diploma. It doesn't. You know, I was struggling in my grades. My parents sent me off to boarding school. I was such a homebody as a kid. I, I hated to leave home. They sent me off to boarding school. I had just become a Christian right before I went to boarding school. I would just come to know Christ. I was a new believer. And I remember being in boarding school. It was a great time. I enjoyed it. But I was one of the few Christian guys there. It was an all-boys school. And my roommate would smoke pot right in front of me, you know, and, and mocking, mock Jesus. Yet I loved the guy. Robert was his name. Loved the guy to death. But he would mock my faith. And it was such a hard environment to be a Christian in. And I remember in high school that I would read the word faithfully, not because I had to, but because it was my lifeline. It's what kept me afloat. And I kept journals through high school. I don't hardly journal now, but in high school, faithfully I journaled because I would write about what I was struggling with. I would write about what I was learning in God's word. And as I read back through those journals, they're hilarious. I couldn't write worth a lick. You know, my handwriting is almost illegible. But anyway, I remember reading back through those journals, and it was just precious. It was God's word that kept me afloat those three years. I remember that. And so it was a necessity. It wasn't just a necessity for me. It was my delight. And oh, how I longed to have that same kind of desire for God's word like I did in high school. So we see in in, in the psalm that immersing yourself in God's word forms the basis for our life with Christ. And it should be our pleasure. We should be preoccupied with God's word. And that leaves us really with a great question this morning. Is the counsel of the wicked or is the word of God what drives your life? Verse 1 and 2, pretty clear. Does the counsel of the wicked drive your life or does God's word drive your life? It's a great question. That's the first angle we see is the Christian's direction. Now, what about the description of the Christian life? The second angle we see kind of in this, this contrast between the wicked and the righteous. The second contrast we see, the second description is the description of the Christian life. You know, I joke, when somebody asks me to read a book, I always say, does it have pictures, right? <laughs> you know, I love pictures. I still love picture books. Love those Barnes & Noble table, you know, with all the coffee table books, you know, with all the pictures. Just love those, right? Well, Psalm 1 is a psalm with pictures. It really is. It's right here in front of you. It's this psalm with pictures. Because verse 3 gives us this picture of what a blessed man looks like. He gives us this really precious imagery of what a blessed man, a happy man, happy in Christ, happy in the Lord gives us this great picture. It's this picture that flows out of the man who, who's living out of the word of God. He is a righteous man who is like a tree. This is the imagery. Like a tree, not a skinny little shrub, but a giant oak tree, the stately tree. We came from Greenville, North Carolina, and we had you know a nice little backyard, and, and there was a creek full of fish, by the way. I used to fish in that creek all the time. I, I miss that. But there was this huge uh, poplar tree. Uh, it Four adult men couldn't even get our arms around this tree. It was so huge. I loved that tree. And that's kind of the picture I have in my mind of this giant poplar or this giant oak towering hundreds of feet into the sky. It is firmly planted by this water source, firmly planted like this tree. And that's the picture that the psalmist gives us of the righteous man. He is like a tree who is stable. He is planted by the waters, deeply rooted into the, to the ground. He has vitality, right? He's planted by streams of living water. He has, he's, he's vivacious. He has vitality in his life. 
he has productivity, right? It produces fruit. It's planted firmly. It's, it's, it's vital. It's full of life. It produces fruit. He has durability. He doesn't wither. When the seasons come, he's strong and green. He doesn't wither. And lastly, he has prosperity that all he does, he prospers. That's the picture that Psalm 1 gives us of the righteous man, that those who delight in God's word are planted. Now, this term is as a passive term. You know, it's all about the verbs in Scripture. And some verbs are active, like you're the one doing the action. You know, this term planted, you don't plant yourself. It's passive. Someone else plants you. Guess who that is? It's the master gardener, God himself, who plants you by streams of water. You are planted in God's word. It's the master gardener who plants you so that you can receive the nourishment to flourish. And I love that picture. That's the, the longing of my heart as a, as, a, as, a, as a follower of God, as a husband, as a father, even as a pastor, that I am planted in God's word. That's my longing and prayer for you, men and women and students and children of Wellspring, that you are planted in God's word. That's your foundation. And I think you can sum up these characteristics of this righteous man planted as a tree with two, kind of three words, stability with vitality. Stability with vitality. Okay, now that's an interesting combination, right? Because we usually would set these two characteristics apart from each other. You know, you're either stable, right? Kind of boring. Or you're vital and full of life, vivacious, right? Stability with vitality. We kind of set these two characteristics apart from one another. Think about it like this. Someone who's creative, someone with vitality, they're kind of vivacious, right? They're hardly able to organize their own stuff, much less their own lives, right? They're kind of artsy, and you can't count on them or her to be on time, but they are full of life. They're just fun to be around. They're vivacious, vital, vitality, full of life. Or you have someone who is the stable type, right? They're organized. They're kind of a neat freak, right? And you you ever wonder if they could ever consider a moment of spontaneous fun, right? They, they, oh, well, maybe they can once they've showered, they've fixed their breakfast, they've walked the dog, they've washed, dried, and put away the breakfast dishes, they've paid the bills, they've cleaned the house. Then they're ready to go doing something fun and spontaneous, right, with the vivacious vitality person, right? But here in Psalm 1, you've got this marriage of someone who is full of stability and vitality. The stability and vitality combine to be the blessed man. He says no to the world and yes to God's word. And he is both rooted in God's word and lively. His stability is neither boring and his vitality isn't chaotic. It's, it's good. It's right. And so he gives us this second contrasting picture. He says, the righteous man who is stable and vital is not like that of the wicked. Verse 4. He gives us the second contrasting picture. The wicked are like chaff, he says. And this is an incredible setup of a, of a contrast. Here you have this Righteous man who is stable and founded and and his foundation is in God's word, active living word. And he says, the wicked are not like that. They are like chaff. A few weeks ago, we were talking about this in the book of Ruth. You remember when Ruth was going to Boaz on the threshing floor? The threshing floor is a place where the farmers brought their crop of wheat and they would use this winnowing fork, kind of like a pitchfork. They would pick up the wheat and they would toss it into the air and the breeze would come through and blow away the chaff, the outside kernel of the wheat. The kernels of wheat would fall to the ground and the chaff would be blown away by the wind. And that's kind of the picture of this, that the wicked is like chaff. Chaff is worthless to the farmer. You know, it it, it was sometimes gathered up, if you could even sweep it up, because it was so light that even the tiniest air current would blow it away. They would sweep it up and they would burn it because it was worthless. 
So the psalmist is giving this picture here that the tree represents stability and vitality. And chaff gives us this picture of rootlessness and ruin. The wicked are like chaff. The wind blows them away. In fact, they cannot, nor do they have the ability to stand against God's judgment, the winds of God's judgment. What is the psalmist going to say? Therefore, the wicked will not, what, stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Marvin Alasky, he's the editor of World Magazine. It's a great magazine. I used to read that a lot in seminary. But he tells the story of a guy named Horace Greeley. Maybe you, you historian buffs remember Horace Greeley. He ran for president back in the 1800s. He was editor of the New York Tribune for 30 years very wealthy individual, and Greeley believed that mankind was naturally good, okay? Mankind was not depraved or sinful, but mankind was naturally good, and so he based his life's work and even his riches based upon that philosophy that man is basically good. He tried to open up 40 kind of humanistic communes during the 1800s. All 40 of those failed. He advocated free love among the people in his communes, searching for ways to try to come up with this human utopia. He ran for president in 1872 and failed miserably, lost much of his fortune in trying to to buy into that. After the election, he looked back on his life, and he viewed his life as a waste, as a sacrifice to one foolish crusade after another. And he said this statement. This was just captivating what he said. Right before he passed away, he said, I stand naked before my God, the most utterly, hopelessly wretched and undone of all who ever lived. I have done more harm and wrong than any man who ever saw the light of day. And yet I take God to witness that I have never intended to injure or harm anyone, but even that is no excuse. My life was worthless and a waste, he says. So Horace Greeley's life legacy was he knew he was chaff. And yet the writer of Psalm gives us this precious picture of a righteous man who is not like chaff, but he's planted like a tree, firmly bearing fruit for a lifetime. What about you? You know, I know folks who are in their 70s, 80s, even 90s to this day who God has not stopped giving them stability and vitality. He's keeping them on their feet as they love and walk and serve Jesus. And they live fruitful lives. That's what I long for. I'm only 44 years old. I know I'm a kid to many of you. But Lord willing, if the Lord by his grace gives me another 44 years, I'll be 88. My prayer is that I will be stable and vital. You know, I'm leading short-term missions trips at 85. Maybe that's completely unrealistic, but I'd like that. I'd love to be going to Haiti at 85 years old. I'd love to be preaching at 85 years old, being stable and vital and founded in God's word. That's what I long for. That's what I long for you, that you are like a tree planted firmly by water, a life of stability and vitality, not a life of chaff. Well, we see our third angle about the Christian's life. We've seen the direction, the description. Now we see the, de- the destiny of the Christian life. So Psalm 1 points us ahead to the destiny of our life as a believer if we walk with the Lord. Notice how verse 5 begins with the word, therefore. It shows us where all of us are headed if we are in Christ. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the wicked, the way of the wicked will perish, he says. Now, notice in verse 5, about, he talks about the judgment. And that's a term that we don't like to talk a lot about in the church, but we should because it's there and it's true. It's talking about the final judgment. And that's why Psalm 1 is so serious and so somber. It says, listen, this morning, listen. Listen to me. Listen to the word. Your life is no trifle. 
Your life is no piddly religious game that you play. Life is not a trifle. Sorry about that. Life is not a trifle. What, what's, going, what's going to happen to you when the end comes? Because the end is coming and you're going to die someday. That's the reality someone's trying to help you see. There's such an urgency even to verse 5 that death is coming. Verse 5 should stir you. That are you ready to stand before God? Because when you die, there is a reality. It's not just going to end and life's going to end and you cease to exist. There is an existence after death for an eternity, and there is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that you will stand before the moment you die, you will stand before him. Are you going to be able to stand before him? What are you going to be able to say? Are you ready for the final judgment that verse 5 is talking about? Well, Psalm 1 makes it clear that some are not ready for that. Notice the way the wicked are shown to us in Psalm 1. Verse 5, they have no justification. The wicked have no justification. They have no one to represent them. They stand alone at the seat of judgment. No justification. Verse 5, the last latter half of verse 5 says, they have no communion. They have no community. They will be alone to themselves at the judgment. Y'all, that is terrifying. To have no one there to root you on. No one there to say, he has trusted Christ for his life. No one there, no community of the righteous to support you or encourage you. You are alone, Psalm 1 tells us. Nor will sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. That's terrifying. They are cut off, cast outside of the community of God's people. Verse 6 tells us not only do they have no justification, they have no community, no communion, but they have no hope. Verse 6 says, what does it say? But the way of the wicked will what? They will perish. And it's like what Jesus says in Matthew 7, that you can be numbered with the You could be outwardly numbered with the people of God. I belong to these people. These are my people, right? This is my church. These are my peeps, right? In Matthew 7, Jesus says, in reality, you're numbered not with the people, the congregation of the righteous, but you are numbered with as one of the wicked, as one of those who will not stand in the judgment. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, one can be sound in calling Jesus Lord. Yeah, I call him Lord. Yes, sir. And you can be sincere, Lord, sincere, Lord, Lord and you can be successful even, but ultimately lost, Jesus says. But what about the righteous here in Psalm 1? What about the righteous here at the time of judgment? Because the righteous and the wicked both will stand before the Lord someday. Listen to this precious promise, beloved. Those of you who are trusting Christ for your salvation, listen to this promise. Verse verse 6 says, It's Yahweh, the Lord, who knows the way of the righteous. The form of that verb there, he knows the way of the righteous. It means ongoing action continual action. It's a verb that doesn't end, but it means it keeps on going and going and going, that the Lord continually knows the way you are going. He continually knows every twist and turn in your life and in in the direction of your life. And that's comforting, right? But get this, it, it goes even deeper. It particularly means that God is intimately and personally concerned about every step in the righteous man's life. It means that if God cares about every step that he takes, then he will care for him as he steps from life to death. 
and he even steps into the judgment that God himself is intimately, personally there and involved, even in that last step to the judgment seat. And he will have no fear. The righteous man will have no fear because it's God who is preserving him until the last day. Many of you have heard the, the great missionary. I think he was probably one of the greatest missionaries, William Carey. He was an English Baptist missionary who was called the father of modern missions. Here's why. He spent 41 years. This is astounding, his life's work. 41 years. I mean, that's almost as old as I am now. For 41 years, he spent uh, his life in India translating the Bible into six, six different languages. That's astounding in and of itself. Not just one language, but translating the Bible six different times in six different languages. And then a he translated the portion of the Bible into 29 other different languages. That's astounding, okay? And yet he constantly wrestled all throughout his life with self-image, self-esteem issues. He would criticize, if you read his journals, and you can do that online, just type in William Carey's journals. They're so good, so devotional. They will bless you. They will feed you. But he wrote constantly in his journals, criticizing himself for his struggles and even for his sin. He had a terrible disease when he was younger that made him, alopecia, that made him lose all of his hair, and he was so ashamed of that. Uh, fire broke out in the early 1800s that destroyed dozens of his manuscripts where he kept his Bible translation notes. That was a huge loss for him. And in his journals, he didn't blame the fire. He didn't blame the devil. He actually blamed himself about the fire. Listen to what he said. The Lord has smitten us. He had the right to do so. We deserve his corrections. There was too much self-conflagration or congratulation in my labors. When he got to the end of his life, he had outlived four of his fellow missionaries. He wrote home to his friend these self-critical words, I know not why so fruitless a tree as me is preserved, but the Lord is too wise to err. Just before he dies, he tells his family what he once put, his epitaph on his tombstone. Now I want you, I want you to, to ask yourself this question. What was William Carey's secret of enduring 41 years in India without a furlough. He never came home. For 41 years, he stayed there. What was his secret for 41 years of translating the Bible into six different languages, parts of it into 29 other different languages? What was his secret for the glory of God that kept him there? What was the secret that in all of his disease, the fact that he was a homely-looking guy, he was burdened with such a sense of guilt. What was the secret for him keeping on and on for the glory of God, the secret of his productivity and usefulness in God's kingdom? Listen to his epitaph. William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. A wretchless, wretched, poor, and helpless worm on his kind arms. I fall. Beloved, the God who cares about you every step, if you are in Christ and trusting him, the God who cares about you in every step, if you trust him in the day of judgment, in his kind arms you fall. In Christ's kind arms you fall. That's, that's precious. But Psalm 1, I, I can't close without an exhortation and a warning because Psalm 1 is a solemn and somber psalm, and it deals with solemn matters that you need to face right now at 1110 today, right now. Because the first word of the psalm is what? Blessed, right? The last word of the psalm is what? Perish. Begins with blessed. It ends with the word perish. 
Dear ones, you must absolutely know, look at me, you must absolutely know that you will stand in the congregation of the righteous. Not because of who you are, not because of your pedigree, not because of your people, not because of your goodness, but you would stand in the congregation of the righteous because it's on his kind arms that you fall. It's on Christ's kind arms that you fall. And you must face that reality right now, beloved. Right now, you must face this reality. And you might ask, well, how do I get in? How in the world do I do that? How in the world am I part of the congregation of the righteous? It's simple. You come to Jesus who says, I am the door. And if anyone enters in through me, they will be saved and they will go out and find pasture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's powerful and it's true. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, it not only has it encouraged us, but I pray that it has stung us to the very heart of our soul and our core of our souls. That, Lord, we must be named and part of the congregation of the righteous. And the only way that that can happen is through Jesus himself. That there is nothing that we can do to earn that or to make that happen. There is no amount of uh, things that we've done in this world that we've estimated in our own eyes to be good that would make us righteous. It's only because of Jesus. It's only because of the perfect uh, birth, life, and even death of Christ as he took our unrighteousness on himself, that he took our absolute depravity and sinfulness and rebellion upon himself on the cross and instead gave us the inheritance that we didn't deserve and that would be eternal life and forgiveness and the very righteousness of Jesus himself. So Lord, it's on your kind arms that we fall, not on our own selves or our own reputation or our own standards that we fall. If that be the case, that Lord, we truly indeed will fall and that we will be cast aside for an eternity alone, cast away from your presence alone for an eternity and that's terrifying what I pray that, Lord, it's, it's community, it's communion is what we've made, been made for. It's what we long for. No wonder we have friends. No wonder we seek to have more and more community around us. It's because we've been made to be in relationship with you. So, Lord, I pray that we would find community and communion in Christ alone. Help those today, Lord, who might not be there, who might not even have that, that they would long for that, and that, Holy Spirit, you would draw them to yourself. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus, and for your glory and our joy. Amen.